Section 3 of Waverly, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Waverly, or Tis Sixty Years Since, Volume 2, by Sir Walter Scott. Chapter 38, A Nocturnal Adventure. There was a moment's pause when the whole party had got out of the hut, and the Highlander, who assumed the command, and who, in Waverley's awakened recollection, seemed to be the same tall figure who had acted as Donald Bain Lane's lieutenant, by whispers and signs, imposed the strictest silence. He delivered to Edward a sword and steel pistol, and, pointing up the track, laid his hand on the hilt of his own claymore, as if to make him sensible they might have occasion to use force to make good their passage. He then placed himself at the head of the party, who moved up the pathway in single or Indian file, Waverley being placed nearest to their leader. He moved with great precaution, as if to avoid giving any alarm, and halted as soon as he came to the verge of the ascent. Waverley was soon sensible of the reason, for he heard at no great distance an English sentinel call out, All's well. The heavy sound sunk on the night wind down the woody glen, and was answered by the echoes of its banks. A second, third, and fourth time the signal was repeated fainter and fainter, as if at a greater and greater distance. It was obvious that a party of soldiers were near, and upon their guard, though not sufficiently so to detect men skillful in every art of predatory warfare, like those with whom he now watched their ineffectual precautions. When these sounds had died upon the silence of the night, the Highlanders began their march swiftly, yet with the most cautious silence. Waverley had little time, or indeed disposition, for observation, and could only discern that they passed at some distance from a large building, in the windows of which a light or two yet seemed to twinkle. A little farther on the leading, Highlander snuffed the wind like a setting spaniel, and then made a signal to his party again to halt. He stooped down upon all fours, wrapped up in his plaid, so as to be scarce distinguishable from the heavy ground on which he moved, and advanced in this posture to reconnoiter. In a short time he returned, and dismissed his attendants, excepting one, and intimating to Waverley that he must imitate his cautious mode of proceeding, all three crept forward on hands and knees. After proceeding a greater way in this inconvenient manner than was at all comfortable to his knees and shins, Waverley perceived the smell of smoke, which probably had been much sooner distinguished by the more acute nasal organs of his guide. It proceeded from the corner of a low and ruinous sheepfold, the walls of which were made of loose stones, as is usual in Scotland. Close by this low wall the Highlander guided Waverley, and in order probably to make him sensible of his danger, or perhaps to obtain the full credit of his own dexterity, he intimated to him, by sign and example, that he might rise his head so as to peep into the sheepfold. Waverley did so, and beheld an outpost of four or five soldiers lying by their watch-fire. They were all asleep except the sentinel, who paced backwards and forwards with his firelock on his shoulder, which glanced red in the light of the fire as he crossed and recrossed before it in his short walk, casting his eye frequently to that part of the heavens, from which the moon, hitherto obscured by mist, seemed now about to make her appearance. In the course of a minute or two, by one of those sudden changes of atmosphere incident to a mountainous country, a breeze arose and swept before it the clouds which had covered the horizon, and the night planet poured her full effulgence upon a wide and blighted heath, skirted indeed with copsewood and stunted trees, in the quarter from which they had come, but open and bare to the observation of the sentinel, in that to which their course tended. The wall of the sheepfold indeed concealed them as they lay, but any advance beyond its shelter seemed impossible without certain discovery. 
The Highlander eyed the blue vault, but far from blessing the useful light with Homer's, or rather Pope's benighted peasant, he muttered a Gaelic curse upon the unseasonable splendor of Macfarlane's buat, i.e., lantern. He looked anxiously around for a few minutes, and then apparently took his resolution. Leaving his attendant with Waverley, after motioning to Edward to remain quiet, and giving his comrade directions in a brief whisper, he retreated, favored by the irregularity of the ground, in the same direction and in the same manner as they had advanced. Edward, turning his head after him, could perceive him crawling on all fours with the dexterity of an Indian, availing himself of every bush and inequality to escape observation, and never passing over the more exposed parts of his track until the sentinel's back was turned from him. At length he reached the thickets and underwood which partly covered the moor in that direction, and probably extended to the verge of the glen where Waverley had been so long an inhabitant. The Highlander disappeared, but it was only for a few minutes, for he suddenly issued forth from a different part of the thicket, and advancing boldly upon the open heath, as if to invite discovery, he leveled his piece and fired at the sentinel. A wound in the arm proved a disagreeable interruption to the poor fellow's meteorological observations, as well as to the tune of Nancy Dawson, which he was whistling. He returned the fire ineffectually, and his comrades, starting up at the alarm, advanced alertly toward the spot from which the first shot had issued. The Highlander, after giving them a full view of his person, dived among the thickets, for his ruse de guerre had now perfectly succeeded. While the soldiers pursued the cause of their disturbance in one direction, Waverley, adopting the hint of his remaining attendant, made the best of his speed in that which his guide originally intended to pursue, and which now, the attention of the soldiers being drawn to a different quarter, was unobserved and unguarded. When they had run about a quarter of a mile, the brow of a rising ground which they had surmounted concealed them from further risk of observation. They still heard, however, at a distance, the shouts of the soldiers as they hallooed to each other upon the heath, and they could also hear the distant roll of a drum beating to arms in the same direction. But these hostile sounds were now far in their rear, and died away upon the breeze as they rapidly proceeded. When they had walked about half an hour, still along open and waste ground of the same description, they came to the stump of an ancient oak, which from its relics appeared to have been at one time a tree of very large size. In an adjacent hollow they found several highlanders, with a horse or two. They had not joined them above a few minutes, which Waverley's attendant employed in all probability, in communicating the cause of their delay, for the words Duncan Durch were often repeated, when Duncan himself appeared out of breath indeed, and with all the symptoms of having run for his life, but laughing and in high spirits at the success of the stratagem by which he had baffled his pursuers. This, indeed, Waverley could easily conceive might be a matter of no great difficulty to the active mountaineer, who was perfectly acquainted with the ground, and traced his course with a firmness and confidence to which his pursuers must have been strangers. The alarm which he excited seemed still to continue, for a dropping shot or two were heard at a great distance, which seemed to serve as an addition to the mirth of Duncan and his comrades. The mountaineer now resumed the arms with which he had entrusted our hero, giving him to understand that the dangers of the journey were happily surmounted. Waverley was then mounted upon one of the horses, a change which the fatigue of the night and his recent illness rendered exceedingly acceptable. His portmanteau was placed on another pony, Duncan mounted a third, and they set forward at a round pace, accompanied by their escort. No other incident marked the course of that night's journey, and at the dawn of morning they attained the banks of a rapid river. The country around was at once fertile and romantic. Steep banks of wood were broken by cornfields, which this year presented an abundant harvest, already in a great measure cut down. 
On the opposite bank of the river, and partly surrounded by a winding of its stream, stood a large and massive castle, the half-ruined turrets of which were already glittering in the first rays of the sun. It was in form an oblong square, of size sufficient to contain a large court in the center. The towers at each angle of the square rose higher than the walls of the building, and were in their turn surmounted by turrets, differing in height and irregular in shape. Upon one of these a sentinel watched, whose bonnet and plaid, streaming in the wind, declared him to be a Highlander, as a broad white ensign which floated from another tower announced that the garrison was held by the insurgent adherents of the House of Stuart. Passing hastily through a small and mean town, where their appearance excited neither surprise nor curiosity in the few peasants whom the labors of the harvest began to summon from their repose, the party crossed an ancient and narrow bridge of several arches, and turning to the left up an avenue of huge old sycamores, Waverley found himself in front of the gloomy yet picturesque structure which he had admired at a distance. A huge iron-grated door, which formed the exterior defense of the gateway, was already thrown back to receive them, and a second, heavily constructed of oak and studded thickly with iron nails, being next opened, admitted them into the interior courtyard. A gentleman, dressed in the highland garb and having a white cockade in his bonnet, assisted Waverley to dismount from his horse, and with much courtesy bid him welcome to the castle. The governor, for so we must term him, having conducted Waverley to a half-ruinous apartment, where, however, there was a small camp-bed, and having offered him any refreshment which he desired, was then about to leave him. "'Will you not add to your civilities,' said Waverley, after having made the usual acknowledgment, "'by having the kindness to inform me where I am, and whether or not I am to consider myself as a prisoner?' I am not at liberty to be so explicit upon this subject as I could wish. Briefly, however, you are in the castle of Duan, in the district of Menteith, and in no danger whatsoever. And how am I assured of that? By the honor of Donald Stuart, governor of the garrison and lieutenant colonel in the service of His Royal Highness, Prince Charles Edward. So saying, he hastily left the apartment, as if to avoid further discussion. Exhausted by the fatigues of the night, our hero now threw himself upon the bed, and was in a few minutes fast asleep. End of chapter 38